0: Now, it would be cool, I think, to become a member of the Avengers. Spider-Man almost made it one time. But there are some requirements. Like, you've got to have a superpower. And then you have to be a little bit conflicted. You've got to be kind of edgy. Edgy probably some secrets in your past that sort of make you that complex person, and that kind of rules all of us out, right? So none of us here are ever going to become members of the Avengers. We can always just be on the outside, looking in, wishing we too could call him Cap, because everybody in the Avengers calls him Well, that's what what we're talking about today. But we are talking about a fellowship and a fabulous fellowship. And there's something better than having a superpower. And that is having a deep, and vital relationship with God. Now, when you get a group of people together who are individually pursuing God, then you have a group that is effective in the world far beyond their numbers. Numbers are not important. But... Because of fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, they have a great effect in the world. And it becomes a fellowship past the normal boundaries. Now that sounds like a title of a sermon. But that's what this is about. Fellowship past the normal boundaries. So I'm reading in first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23. It says, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain." Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they can't be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So this chapter begins with David's last words. And his last words are, I did what God told me to do rule his people in the fear of God. David's last words, probably his last words of prophecy ever in his life. And you'd expect last words to be significant, wouldn't you? You're about to step out of this world and see God. How much more significant are these last words, when these are the last words that God speaks through you. And you notice he identifies himself in three ways here. That is, he calls himself David, the son of Jesse. Now that's who he is apart from being anything else. He could have said, David, king of Israel, by the grace of God, and given his, you know, long list of real description. But he started life as David, the son of Jesse. And you know, before God, that's who we are. Naked, we stand before God. But then he says, the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Now, God took a normal kid and exalted him, raised him up to be head over his people. And he exalted David to do this by putting his spirit upon him. Not only did he have a position, a title, a role, but he had the enabling of God on his life ever since he was a kid, ever since Samuel poured oil on him. The Holy Spirit also came upon him, and he was a prophet. He received words from God and a tremendous amount of words of God. He also calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, you know, Moses wrote five books of Scripture. That is a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, after Moses, there's just a trickle, just a little tiny bit, until you get to David and then you get this tremendous outpouring of scripture in the form of songs and history. And then, along with David, you get other people prophesying in song. That you get Asaph, Heman, Ethan, the sons of Korah. And you know what David wrote is sweet and pleasant. I don't know if you think about it that way, but he calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, he's not, he's not going or like this, but you know, what he wrote is so sweet. That is, it's pleasant and it's satisfying. You know, if you're, if, if you need something from God, you don't find yourself turning to Deuteronomy. You go to the Psalms, don't you? Because you've got all the experience right there. You've got the highs of praising God and the revelation, but you've also got the depths. How long, O God? And you read that and you go, yeah, that's me. How long? See, it's legitimate. You find out how you can live with God while you read, The Psalms, see, and that's satisfying immensely. So here's David saying really what the Lord told him a long time ago. And this is his last word. God told him how he wanted him to rule over his people Israel. He says, I want you to be just. I want you to rule in the fear of God. When you rule in the fear of God, you are aware that you're under God. You don't say, I have all this power and authority so I can get everything the way I want it. And if I want to do something, That's okay because I've got all the authority. I can do anything I want, and nobody can tell me no. You know, that's like these guys who are sons of rebellion like thorns. They're a drag because they can oppress anybody. They can take anything they want to away from anybody. You know, people work hard, and they try to make their lives better. And these guys come in and say, well, that looks good. I'll take that, and I'll take that, and I'll take that. We'll raise the taxes, ha! And we'll keep working the government so it benefits me, and if it takes it from you, that's tough, because my little finger is thicker than my father's loins, and I can do anything I want. And everybody says, well, what good is it to work hard? What good is it to, you know, play by the rules and try to make life better for myself? Because here comes big what's-his-face to take everything. It's a really discouraging environment. It's kind of the environment we have right now. Because they're not ruling in the fear of God. There's nobody over them. They can do anything they want, they think. But you know, somebody who rules in the fear of God is really aware that God is over him. And before God, he's just David the son of Jesse and he's accountable to God, and he's going to stand before God, and God's going to say, did you rule my people, fearing me? So when you stand before God, what possible benefit could you have from ruling unrighteously? That secret bank account in the Bahamas is not going to help you when you stand before God. You took what from everybody? So you could have billions? We need to have a little talk, my friend. So this makes you, as a king, humble. And it makes you think of God and others. And your goal is to watch out for everybody's rights, that nobody gets trampled on, but everybody has the freedom to work hard and develop and flourish and grow. You got to enforce the laws so everybody knows. There are boundaries. There are limits. You can't violate those boundaries. Everybody stay in your own lane. Don't oppress anybody. And then everybody feels like, whoa, I can improve my situation. If I work hard, I can make my life better. And nobody's going to take it from me. Now, when you rule in the fear of God, it makes an environment where people can grow and flourish. And David compares it to a sunny, clear morning after a rainstorm. And it's been blowing all night and rattling the windows. And it's wet. And it's stormy. But then the morning after, you wake up. Blue skies. Birds are singing. Everything's nice and wet and watered. And it's growing like crazy. It's calm. It's peaceful. The air is washed clean. So everything is going to grow like crazy. It's a great morning. That's what it's like when somebody rules in the fear of God. And at the end of his life, David marvels that God made him that way. That he says, I want you to be that guy that rules in the fear of God because God made an everlasting covenant with him and with his descendants. And that's going to result in a perfect government in the fear of God forever. And David says, that's salvation. That's all my heart's desire. And this is going to be fulfilled. That is, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is going to rule on David's throne forever. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, that's what it says in verse 5. Will he not make it increase? The answer is yes. So salvation is not this static thing. It's something that grows. Paul says in Ephesians, he's going to show us throughout the ages the riches of the glory of salvation in Jesus. And just when we think, wow, this is fantastic, it's going to grow. Now, I don't know how he's going to do that. But our salvation is not static. There's more. And just when you think, how could there be any more? There's going to be more. This is amazing. Now, you know, hell is static. There's not going to be any growth in hell, no development. It's going to be awful from the very start, and it's going to stay awful. It's not going to grow. So get this. Hell is static. Salvation is dynamic. It's going to grow forever. So these poor sons of rebellion, these poor guys who think, I'm going to get my way, I'm going to tweak everybody and take what they've got so I can be big stuff. These poor guys... They're going to be burned, burned with fire. That's what it says. I wouldn't want to be these guys. In fact, this is why we're supposed to pray for our government, pray for the guys in power. I don't think God wants them to perish. You know, we really believe God saved the king. I hope you believe that. We need to pray for these guys. Now, David obeyed God, and he created a fabulous environment in the nation of Israel to grow and flourish. And the rest of this chapter is devoted to David's mighty men. You think, why? Why do we have to look at David's mighty men? Who cares about mighty men? And yet there's something going on here. Because David was humble before God, he ruled in the fear of God, he affected those around him. And there's guys who entered into pursuing God in the same way. And through humility and the fear of God, they flourished amazingly. And they had this tight fellowship. That's what we're looking at here. Read along with me from verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joship Bashabeth, the Takmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him with Shammah the son of Agi the Herorite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three, was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man, The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Isn't it great to hear the laughter of someone who's truly happy in Jesus? Now, the reason why John is laughing, because I can read his mind. I'm in the Avengers, and I have a superpower. He's thinking, what is he going to say about this? And especially, what is there edifying? Because this first guy killed 800 men. What are you going to do about that? And I'll tell you what I'm going to do with that. This reminds me of the time when Samson killed 1,000 Philistines with what he found at hand, which was the jawbone of a donkey. Now, why did Samson kill 1,000 guys? The answer, because he had to. Why did this fellow, Joshua Bashabith, kill 800 guys? Because he had to. Because if he didn't, they would have killed him. Now, he had to face overwhelming odds, and he undoubtedly saved Israel that day. How did he do that? Because God obviously strengthened him. And that's what it says about Eleazar and Shammah. The Lord brought about a great victory. Now, this is in the covenant of Moses. It's Leviticus 26, verse 7. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Now, Josiah Bathsheba believed that, and the Lord worked through him. See, The fear of the Lord results in humility. And that means thinking of others, not yourself. And this guy stood at a spot between the enemy and Israel, and he killed 800 guys because he had to. Because he wasn't thinking about himself. Do you see that? So... Here's where one guy's dependence and trust upon God becomes a blessing to an entire group. Everyone benefits when one person is devoted to God. Eliezer shows the same humility. You know, it says here that he was one of those three mighty men with David. It was him and David And they were outnumbered. And most of the army of Israel says, if I stay here, I'm going to die. They run away. Who were they thinking about? Every one of them is thinking about their own life. But Eleazar is different. Eleazar says, if I leave here, the lamp of Israel goes out. They kill David. I will not let that happen. He wasn't thinking about himself. So, he severely overuses his hand. That's what it means when, after the battle, he could not let go of his sword. Now, I know, I've heard sermons about how the sword is the word of God, and he could not let go, and that is a good thing to have. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about the fact that he so overused his hand that he hurt himself. He did himself damage. And the reason was, if he let go of his sword, he could not grab it again, and that wasn't an option. And this is what fellowship does. Sometimes you have to overuse yourself. You have to lay yourself out for the sake of somebody else. And he did himself damage to save David. It wasn't about him. So rather than think about, oh, I could be having a relief, and what am I doing to my hand? I need to love myself and really take care of myself. You know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. He just says, you know, if I, if I just relax this sword for a second, we're both goners. And you notice how this benefited all of Israel? That all Israel came back only to strip. Now, can you imagine you're, you're after a victory and you get to plunder the spoils, but you realize, I did nothing for this. You realize how that would humble you and make you think, well, why didn't I trust in God like Eliezer did? Come on, Rob, get with it. Trusting God, too, see, humbles everybody. And then you look at Shammah here. He's in a piece of ground full of lentils. Is that important? Was it his field? He didn't care about lentils. But, you know, if he lets the Philistines have this, they won't stop. And so it's not about him It's about Israel, and Shammah says, no, you don't. You will not take this from Israel. And you know, he's all by himself, and yet he's not alone, because the Lord is with him. Because it says, the Lord brought about a great victory, because he says, I am with you. And Shammah goes, you had better be, because if you don't show up, I'm dead. And God saved him. And through that benefited all of Israel. That's through Shammah's fear of God and his humility. Does everybody see this? It's a trend. Now, look at the three mighty men satisfying David's longing david says ah i wish i wish i could have a cup of cold water from that well now he's not he's not in bethlehem bethlehem was his hometown by the way but the philistines have temporarily taken it And that's their garrison. Everything is wrong right here. David's going to fix it, but it's not fixed yet. Does everybody get that? So getting David a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem is not a military objective. It's just a wish. But those guys get it in their head. Hey, let's do it. Now why would they do that? Because they love David and they're devoted to him. And that love comes from the fear of God and humility. They're not thinking about themselves. If you looked at this in coldly military perspective, this is stupid. There's no military advantage here. They're just getting him a drink of water that he wanted. It means you can have anything you want, David. We'll do it for you. So David responds with humility and the fear of God. He's got this water. And he goes, oh my goodness. Now, how would you feel in a situation like that? You guys risk your lives to bring me water. And he says, this is your lives here. This water is precious. It's not like common water that you drink and then you urinate. This isn't that stuff. This is special. This is holy to the Lord. I'm going to use it to worship. He's holding their lives as sacred. And holy, Do you understand that? So, this is more than a drink of water, a daring missionary, or military raid. This is about love and devotion on an extreme level that results in worship. And you know, when everybody has that relationship with God... The fellowship is real and intense. Now, when you get to verse 18 in Abishai, here's a guy who's the chief of the 30, 37 guys that were this amazing group of guys who sought the Lord and had a relationship with David, and they were mighty kind of like his version of the Avengers. Now, you notice he, he doesn't attain to the three, but he is the boss in a funny kind of a way. And it says to me that he's got another skill set than these three guys who are obviously in a league of their own. Now, he's not a slouch either. Because he killed 300 guys with his spear at one time. That's pretty significant. But his skill seems to be organization and strategy. He's an all-rounder that makes this team more effective through his management. Now, some people would say, well, if you can't kill 800 guys at a time, like, what good are you? You know, and that is the guy to shoot for and everybody else. It's kind of like, well, you know, you're, you're one of the minions, but you're not flashy, but there's no sense of that. You know, there's just everybody has their spot to fill. And there's no comparisons going on. Like, it's okay that Abishai is Abishai and Josheb Bashabith is obviously the killer that he is. <laughs> it's okay. So, you know if it was a normal sort of business office, the manager would be making sure that there's nobody in the office better than him. And if there is, he's going to strip them down and make them feel crummy till they leave. And then the business is hurt, right? There's none of that here. Everybody gets to be who they are in the Lord. And this is interesting because when you come to Benea, this guy is a one of a kind, just like all the other guys. A one of a kind. He fears God and He's humble. And evidently, this guy does not look dangerous. And he likes it that way. <laughs> All right? Now, look what happens here. Um, sorry. He killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. Notice, these guys look dangerous. They're lion-like. You look at them and you go, oh this guys are dangerous. That's probably how they win a lot of their battles, just like Goliath. Goliath shows up. He's nine feet tall. He's wearing armor like a tank. Everybody runs away. Hey, I didn't even have to fight. This is cool. Just scare them to death. So these guys look lion-like. And he walks towards them and they go, This guy doesn't look like anything until it's too late and they're dead. See? They go by appearances. But Benea does not go by appearance. He cultivates this I'm not dangerous. So that people get overconfident. He's cool headed. And he's daring. So he jumps into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Think about this for a second. A pit does not give you room to maneuver. And you don't have the strength to go around with a lion. And you don't have a lot of time before the lion kills you. So what does he do? He jumps in there. Lion's dead. Wow, never saw it coming. But then this Egyptian is really something, because it says right out, he's a spectacular man. Some of your translations might say beautiful. In other words, he's awesome. He's awesomely beautiful. (laughs) You just got it, didn't you? Okay, he's awesomely beautiful, and here comes Benia, and he's got a spear in his hand. The other translation he uses is a club. Really, a club? If you compare spear with club, who wins? Spear. Spear beats club. So, did Benia forget his sword? I can't imagine him doing that, but I can imagine him saying, oh, look at that, awesomely beautiful. Hey, give me that club. So he goes out with their club. And what does this awesomely beautiful guy think? What a numpty. What a pinhead. Coming out with a club. What's this guy thinking? So here's a question. How do you lose your spear in a fight? It means your grasp on it is not as tight as it ought to be. So you don't expect when somebody coming to you with a club who looks like a numpty, all of a sudden drops the club, grabs your spear, you're dead. He did not think he had the brains, the audacity to kill him with his own weapon. He never saw it coming. See, all the other guys were going like this. Oh, don't fuss with Benea. Whatever you do, don't fuss with him. They thought, oh, this poor, beautiful guy is dead. Cool-headed, audacious, quick-thinking. See, that's the guy David wants to be the head of his bodyguard. And that's why he makes Benea. His bodyguard. Now, you know, it says B'nai has honor among the 30 and among another three. But see, he didn't attain to the three and he didn't have to. He wasn't trying to be like a guy who could kill 800 guys in one go. He's got his own thing. You know, he's got more of a Clint Eastwood sort of a, you never see it coming. And he likes it that way. He gets to be him. Does everybody see that? Now, the rest of the chapter here, we got a list of the group known as the 30. And there's a bunch of names I'm not even going to try to pronounce. It says in the very last verse, there's 37 Names in this list. But you know, I've counted this list, I can't tell you how many times. There's only 36 in there. And I've read commentaries, and I finally found one that owned up to the truth. There's only 36 names there. As a Bible teacher, this bugs me. Because everything ought to add up. And it doesn't. But here's what I notice about this chapter. There's one guy whose name is repeated three times in this chapter, but he's not counted as a member of the 37. Don't you find that interesting? He's mentioned three times. The only guy that's mentioned more times is David but he's not a member of the 30. And that guy is Joab. And this is interesting about Joab. He's a different guy than the 30. Joab is out for himself. That is, the very beginning, when we first see Joab, David is about to take Jerusalem, the city of the Jebusites, And he says, the first guy up the water shaft is going to be commander of the army. And Joab goes up. He says, that's what I want. When David is negotiating with Abner to become king over all Israel, Joab murders Abner. Right there in one of the cities of refuge, he kills Abner because Abner killed his brother, Azahel. So can you imagine a guy that David is dealing with in order to arrange the unification of the entire nation? And Joab can't think about anything else than I want to kill this guy. Joab is doing this for himself. When David appoints Amazah, commander of the army, he's deliberately just saying, I'm done working with you, Joab. Joab kills him. Takes his place back. And you know, he did a lot of good things. You can read about him. So it's not saying he was a total jerk, but at crucial moments, Joab did what Joab wanted to do for the sake of Joab And you know, it turns out you can do a lot of nice things if it happens to line up with what you want to do. But that doesn't mean that you have a relationship with God. It doesn't mean that you're seeking God and you're humbling yourself before Him and you have a fear of God. It just means you can do nice stuff. So what? Everybody does nice stuff all the time. It does not mean... You have a relationship with God. My dad was a nice guy, but he was not born again until way later. He's just a nice guy. So there's kind of a funny idea out there in the world that Christian equals nice guy. And if you're nice enough, you're going to go to heaven. No, you're not. So what if you're a nice person? You're not born again of the Holy Spirit. You don't have a new heart from God. You don't have Jesus living in you. You're just a nice guy, and nice guys don't go to heaven. Nice guys are sinners that are standing in the condemnation of God right now. So the main difference between Joab and the rest of the guys is that Joab is out for Joab. He's not in the fear of God, seeking that relationship with God, and being a part of a group of people who are also seeking God and benefiting one another. You know, during his lifetime, he might have been counted in the 30. I don't know. I don't know why he wouldn't be in there. 37 names, but one of them is missing. Now, you have a group of people, and if each one of them is seeking the Lord with all they have in the fear of God and humility then you have a potential within this group to be effective far beyond their numbers. And what we've done here is describe the church. The size of a church is not important. But the relationship with God is what makes them important. See, As each believer in Jesus pursues Jesus, he does something in their lives which he won't do with anybody else, not even another believer. That is, he makes you a true individual. He makes you more you than you could ever be trying really hard On your own. Because on your own, you're going to be conformed to the world. Just like we read about in Romans 12. You cannot escape it. You will be conformed and made like everybody else, even though you're trying really hard. You want to be outrageous? Put 47 earrings in your ears, rip out your knees, and buy a big motorcycle. Just like everybody else, who's trying to be themselves. Big deal. Got holes in your ears. Well done. When God comes into your life, he has a divine plan He has works for you prepared before the foundation of the world for you to walk in them. And he doesn't have them prepared for somebody else. They're prepared for you. And as you make these divine appointments, and as you do what God is calling you to do, you develop to be you and nobody else. That is, if you turn out like somebody else, there's a mistake. You know, in a snowstorm, billions of snowflakes, not a one of them alike. You know why? He's God. He does not have to repeat himself. And he's going to do something in your life that is unique and irreplaceable. Don't you think that's interesting? And so, here he is developing you, developing your skill set, the way he's made you to be. As you seek him with everything and you say, here I am. Then God begins to do something through you that is unique. We just read about that. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for you. what he wants you to do that's different from everybody else. Now you bring all those people together and they're all in the fear of God and humility thinking about others and not themselves. What a tremendous fellowship of people who want to collectively work out the will of God and have a significance beyond their numbers. That's what the church is supposed to be. All right? Now, there's always the tendency to turn the church into a club with a membership. And there's the people who are in and the people who are out. And the people who are in are the cool people. They get the secrets. And the out people get the message. You guys are not like in the club. You're the minions. You're the one with the one eye right in the center and then the scuba mask. But you're not cool like us. In the elite group, we're the Avengers. We have superpowers. And you feel like, huh, well, what does it take to get into the elite group then? Oh, you have to be cool like us. The church is not a club. And it's not, you know, the ins and then all the outs the winners and the losers. And the winners inside going, <clears throat> Isn't it fun to be a winner? And all the losers are in the outside of going, huh, I wish I were a winner, but no, I'm a loser. What God has is so much more. You know how you get into the elite group in a church? You serve more people. All the elites are the ones who show up early and leave late. They're the ones who overextend themselves so they hurt themselves serving other people because they're thinking about other people. Because in the end, the greatest is the slave of all. And sometimes when you're doing this, you have to hurt yourself. And do it knowing you're hurting yourself. And it's not to your benefit, it's to somebody else's benefit. You want to be in the lead? All it takes is a devotion to Jesus, the fear of God and humility. And then you too can come early and stay late and do everything to help somebody else. Because that's what a church is about. Oh, I thought we got capes. No, no capes. No, the elite comes when you stand before Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, so that the entire universe hears that. See, then you know you're in the elite. So look, are you seeking what God wants you to be? I don't really know. I can't tell you. You are to be a world-shaking individual. I don't know. You know that God knows? And you come to Him and you say, God, make me the person you want me to be. Here I am. No deals. Whatever it takes. And then you know what? He's going to put you to work serving other people. And he's going to show you where your niche is to benefit somebody else. You think, why should I do that? Because the one who is greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant of all. And it's not cool to hang back and be served. What is really cool is to get in there and make somebody else's life better. And anybody can do that. This isn't a limited membership. It is unlimited. The only requirement is that you are seeking God. So the question is, are you seeking God as much as you possibly can? And the only person who knows the answer to that is you and God. So don't compare yourself to anybody. Like, people come into a church and think, well, is anybody reaching out to me? The real question is, are you reaching out to anybody? Don't wait for anybody to reach out to you. Reach out to people. Find out what you can do for them, and then do it. Because you focus on what you bring to the body. That's healthy. But just focusing on, well, what can people do for me? Is this a church that serves my needs? That's absolute garbage. Yeah, that's true. So, if you want to know, look in Romans 12. That's why I read it before the service. Because it's all the kind of stuff you could be doing. Say, God, what do you want me to be? And seriously, when you start praying this prayer, you have no idea what God's going to do, because He really wants to do something beyond what we can think. So don't limit Him, and just say, okay, here I am. And see, this is worship. Singing songs is fun, but for 20 minutes on a Sunday, that's not worship. Worship is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Here I am, God. Anything you want, what do you want? How about now? Here I am. This is worship. So, to the extent that you don't pursue your relationship with God, you don't contribute to the group, you even betray the group, just like Joab. That's why he's not there. So see, a church requires everyone to pursue the Lord. That's not a drag. Again, this is not a death sentence. This is to find out who you are. Don't you think that'd be fun? All these, you know, movies about I'm searching for myself. How would you like to find out? And I I think it's really glorious to find out what is God going to do in me and through me. And that means functioning the way God made you. It's going to be more you than you could ever imagine on your own. He's got better taste than you do. Isn't that glorious? Well, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this idea that we can be in a group of people seeking you and worshiping you, offering ourselves up to you, And thank you that you even work in our lives to bring us to Jesus, to save us. Thank you that the result of receiving Jesus is not death, but life. And we pray that we would know Jesus. Help us to seek after And just to say, here here I am. What do you want? I want to pray for each one of us today that you so work in our lives that you make each one of us unique and irreplaceable, and you glorify yourself in each one of us. And you know, we cannot do this apart from you. So please, work in us. We trust you to do this, because we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.